Those of you who were here last week uh, were fortunate to hear Mark Buchanan. Uh, what a gifted, remarkable speaker, uh, ability to unpack scripture in ways that uh, in some ways are, are mind-blowing, I will say. Uh, Mark is a professor of pastoral theology at Ambrose University. He's pastored for 24 years. Uh, he's published a number of books. If I could give a plug uh, for one of many books, uh, I would highly recommend his book, uh, The Rest of God, uh, that speaks about Sabbath, uh, a timely book in the day and age that we live in today uh, is uh, some fresh insights in the ways in which we think about Sabbath. And so uh, I will read scripture shortly, but Mark, we want to thank you for giving so graciously of your time as we finish out this final week, this final day of our, our pastor's sabbatical. So thank you for uh, ministering so well to us as a community. Our scripture today comes from John chapter 15, verses 1 to 17. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last." And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give to you. This is my command. Love each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Well, good morning again. Just a little over a year ago, I was north of the city small town, and uh, speaking on the August long weekend, and none too happy to be doing that. Uh, It was a beautiful weather, and I was confined to a windowless room. I've been asked to do four talks, and um, I decided that I would sort of give them the best I had during the talks, but I wouldn't give them anything else. I get on my motorcycle and ride home between gigs. And I'd done two of the talks, and nobody had said a thing to me. And the room was 
designed such that I was inescapable, unavoidable. Uh, I stood right by the door, single exit, and people had to flow by me, and I may as well have been Frodo with his ring on because nobody could see me. Nobody said anything, nobody acknowledged my presence, nobody said, you know, that was helpful, or what did you mean by thus and such. So I did two of the talks, and uh, this complete lack of response, and I'm starting to feel I'm, I'm tanking. So I said to the Lord, Lord, it would be great if you could just send somebody, you know, along to, to, to give me some kind of word of, you know, encouragement. And I finished the third talk, and I looked up, and there was a young man with Down syndrome beelining for me. And I was so excited. You know, I pastored, as Joel said, for 24 years. And we had a number of uh, young men and women in our church with Down syndrome. And I just, they were delightful. Uh, completely, if they told you you did well, you did well. Um, there's no bluffing there. And, and, and kind of lavish in their, in their generosity and their affection. It was, so I said, Lord, thank you that you've sent this angel of mercy to let me know I'm doing okay. Well, this young man gets up and uh, I reach out my hand to shake his hand. He doesn't want to shake my hand. He gets right into my personal space uh, and he says, you're Boeing. And, and he kind of slurred it like that, so I, I wanted to make sure I understood. So I said, pardon me. He said, you're bawling, everybody falling asleep. <laughs> and I said, so, just so I'm clear, I'm boring you? And he said, no, you're bawling everybody, everybody's falling asleep. <laughs> so I, I'm pretty alarmed because I think, uh, you know, is this Jesus come you know, a little bit disguised to sort of uh, pass an evaluation on my preaching. And so I say to him, well, well, what would you suggest? What ought I to do to be less boring? And he says, tell jokes. Pastor so-and-so always tells jokes. At this point, all I feel is just this kind of tidal wave of relief. I don't know if that's a mixed metaphor, but anyhow... I just feel this sort of, oh, you know, it can't be Jesus because Jesus wouldn't tell me to tell more jokes. So I just kind of like forget what I said, you know, some some kind of like, well, I'm not that funny. And, and I get on my motorcycle and I'm riding back home and the Lord says to me, that was me. And I said, well, uh, help me understand. You want me to tell more jokes? He says, no, didn't you understand what that young man was saying? His pastor always includes him, creates room for him. He says, you are so welcome. His pastor loves him. And then I got the real rebuke. What I sense the Lord is saying to me is never, ever, ever get in front of my people again and speak of my character to them without first opening yourself wide to be the very embodiment of that which you speak. Don't ever talk of my love again, unless you love. So I want to say to you that I've actually just prayed, God, um, give me this, your love. And that's been my prayer since August, long weekend last year. Every time I get up to speak, let me be an embodiment of that which I proclaim. 
Well, uh, but I feel, in, in effect, I feel deficient. Do you ever feel deficient in love? Or a lot of things? Generosity, grace, kindness. And Jesus, in this passage that Joel read so well, is saying you are deficient if you try to muster it up from you. Joel is a, a very fine, fine colleague. Um, wonderful to work with, very encouraging. But even as you know, gracious as Joel is, he does not have sufficient provision within himself to pull from himself all that he needs for living the life that Christ has called us to. Jesus just says it right out. If you try to do this on your own, you become dead wood. And if you want, he's actually uh, just, I'm not going to dwell or explore this, but he's actually quoting or citing Ezekiel 15, where Ezekiel just simply says, do you ever see anybody use vine wood for anything? I mean, we use oak wood, pine wood, birch wood, apple wood. We use dead wood for lots of things, but you never see anybody use vine wood for anything. It's useless. <laughs> Jesus says, apart from me, you can't do anything. And so the, the deficiency that I experience, and I imagine you do too, to love my wife adequately, my children adequately, my neighbor adequately, my friends adequately, and all oh, my enemies, my enemies, ooh. Because it's right on the heels of this, we didn't read it, that Jesus sends the disciples into the world to be a testament of his love to a world that hates him and hates us. And what will convince him? Love. I'm deficient. How do I become a lover? And Jesus says, come and live in my love shack. I want you to live in the place of the overflow of my love. In fact, if there is a key word in the text just read, it's a surprising little word. It's called a preposition, as. As a father has loved me, so I have loved you. That all the love, all of the grace, all of the kindness, all of the peace, all of the joy that we are exhorted, even commanded to live in. Jesus says, you got to love one another. It's a command. <laughs> but all of it is simply the overflow of the life that we've been gifted with in Jesus Christ. We, we've been invited into the very dwelling place of his love. God is love, John will later write. And at the heart of being a disciple is this call to love. And at the heart of the call to love is being beloved, dwelling in, receiving in all of its fullness, all its lavishness, the love of God in Christ Jesus. Think with me for a moment of the overarching structure of the Gospel of John. How does John's gospel begin? The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was from the. It's echoing Genesis 1 in the beginning, God said. 
In other words, the, the opening of John, John 1, is as wide a canvas as you can imagine uh, in, in time and in space. In the beginning. He's not just talking about the beginning of history or even geological time. He's talking about cosmic time. The archaic. <laughs> Before anything, there was God. This grand sweep. And then he says, uh, because it echoes Genesis 1, in the beginning was uh, God said, let there be light and there light. And, and he this, creation that he creates. It's as wide as a cosmos, as long as eternity and as wide as a cosmos. That's how John, it's a big, it's a big picture. <laughs> it's a large canvas. How does John end? John 21. It ends with Jesus sitting on a beach with Peter, having an intimate face-to-face -face conversation where he says, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? <laughs> you see, this is the shape of uh, the, the entire gospel. It begins large, as large as your imagination can conceive. And it always ends, Glenn, <laughs> with Jesus looking you in the eye and saying, are we good? <laughs> Do you love me? That intimate. Some of you, I just had the sense, some of you haven't had that talk yet, right? W would you just invite Jesus to say, Jesus, I want to have that personal face-to-face, -face, very intimate conversation Will we clear up the matter of love? <laughs> I know I'm loved and I love you. Do you love me more than these, Jesus says. What does he mean, these? That's John 21 again. Do you love me more than these? Uh, lots of scholarly speculation, what he's talking about. Do you love me more than these other people love me? That's probably, I don't think, what he's saying. <laughs> Do you love me more than this stuff? Or these people, that probably closer to it. Is Jesus running a competition here? You must love me more than these. Well, here's how any of us who have sort of made any progress at all in understanding the love of Jesus, living in and abiding in the love of Jesus, have come to understand this. That if we love anything more than we love Jesus, we actually won't love that thing adequately. If we love anything more than we love Jesus, we actually will not love our wife or our children or our work or whatever it happens to be. We will love it inadequately because it will be simply a love out of our human capacity and we're not enough. <laughs> and if you love Jesus more than these, it turns out you can love your child and your wife and the good things in your life more than you could ever possibly imagine if you're just trying to love it out of your own strength. One of my favorite preachers now gone to glory is a man by the name of Harry Robinson. He was a pastor at an Anglican church in Vancouver for many years, Granville Chapel. No, that wasn't it. Anyhow, 
It was, it was uh, somewhere, somewhere in Vancouver, trust me. And Harry was a very large man with very big hands. Uh, I have very small hands, and he would be about eight times the size. I mean, I think his fingers would go up to Harry, maybe slightly exaggerated. And Harry had this, this gravelly voice, and he'd always start his sermons with his head kind of cocked to the side, not quite looking at anybody, kind of looking at some kind of middle distance here with his gravelly voice. He was doing a funeral once at his church, and it was some high muckety-muck in the community who had sat on boards and you know, held prestigious positions and all of that, but never had time for, for God. And person after person came up to eulogize this man, to say nice things about his golf game and his, you know, his skill at negotiating and his wisdom on various leadership capacities and all these sort of things about like five people paying tribute to him. And none of it had to do with anything with God. And it sounded like, you know, an, an interesting good life. He had yachts and boats and, you know, he played golf all over the world and all these sort of things. The last man to pay tribute to this deceased man left his notes on the podium. And Harry was following right after to give his little talk. Well, he gets up there and he looks at the notes that have been left on the podium and he says, oh, all these things, all these things, all these things mean nothing if you do not know the deep, deep love of Jesus. <laughs> he had their attention. <laughs> I don't know if I'd ever have the courage to do something like that in a funeral, but it's true. All these things, all the, all the things that we might do, all the things that we might accumulate, all the loves that we might have, <laughs> they don't really mean anything if we haven't lived in, received, abided in the deep, deep love of Jesus. <laughs> Amen. Amen. To love me more than these. Well, there's a little clue in, uh, I'm going back and forth, but in the John 21, uh, Jesus talking to Peter on the beach, little clue to the whole meaning of love. And it's this little clue that, that Jesus says it, and I'm not going to go into John 21, uh, but in verse 7, 21, 7, and 20, John refers to this person who he says, the one Jesus loves. You know that phrase? The one Jesus loves. It, it, there's three occurrences of that in his gospel. In John 13, 23 as well, he says, the one Jesus loves was at the table with Jesus. Now, we, we understand that, that this is a, a, a sort of a euphemism for John himself. John is identifying himself as the one Jesus loves. And in a sense, he's basking in this identity as the beloved. There's this little fragment of poetry from Raymond Carver, not a Christian, uh, found after he, d he died. And it's this little fragment that says, what, and, what did you, uh, and did you get what you wanted from life? Yes, I did. And what did you want? Two 
find myself loved, to find myself beloved upon the earth. <laughs> well, John got what he wanted from this life. He found himself beloved. I am the one Jesus loves. Three times he says it. And when you think about how that transformed John himself, that's quite a story in itself. John has a nickname when Jesus, from Jesus himself. Jesus labels him with a nickname. And if you grew up with nicknames, <laughs> you know the nickname Jesus gives to John and his brother James? You guys read your Bibles, right? What's the nickname? Sons of Thunder. You hot air, you. You loud noises, you. And indeed, there's a sense that John was a rash, brash, angry, and grasping man. Goes into a Samaritan village one day, wants to get some food. The Samaritans take to him and his brother none too kindly. And Jesus, uh, they go to Jesus and say, um, the, the, we didn't get a good reception here. Can we call down fire from heaven upon them? Can we have nuclear capabilities? What do they call it in the U.S. military? Can we, can we bring down a hellfire on them? Can we, can we do a drone thing? Uh, go to sneak up to Jesus at the prompting of their mom. Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can my brother and I get the best offices, the, the, the corner offices beside you? <laughs> can we get the best piece of real estate? They're hot-headed. They're grasping. Sons of thunder. Do you know what the nickname that the community that John pastored gave to John? The apostle of love. The apostle of love. They didn't know him as an angry man, a rash man, a grasping man. They knew him as a man who... His very life was a testament and an overflow of the love of Jesus Christ. In fact, there's a, a great story, a legendary, uh, we don't know quite how historical it is, but it seems to be well attested uh, that John on his deathbed, he's an old, old man, the only, the only apostle who died of natural causes, an old man, everyone else was sort of martyred. But, but John's this old man in his 90s, and he's dying, he's rickety-boned, he's wheezing away, and his beloved community gathers around his deathbed, begging for one more word from John. And the story is he raises himself up on his bony elbows, and he says, love one another. And then he falls back onto his bed, and they sort of stand there waiting, breath baited, you know, for more. And finally said, is there any more? And he raises himself up again, and he says, that is enough. <laughs> so we see just in, in that little arc, that arc of his story, the transformation of a life living in the identity, I am the one Jesus loved. But here's the thing, was John just going around with this, I'm more special than you are. I'm the one he loves, me, ha ha. I don't think so, because there's actually a fourth occurrence of the phrase, the one Jesus loves in John. Chapter 11, verse 3, it describes Lazarus as the one you love. 
And then who's the person who writes this? Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Or who wrote this? We love because he first loved us. That's John. See, I don't think John's the first or, or the only. I don't think he has, he's claiming some exclusive title or identity for himself. You know what it is? I think he's the first to get it. First to get it. And you're the one Jesus loves. <laughs> it, that you're the one Jesus loves. And I mean, this is the interesting thing about the kingdom is that the more, you know, in our earthly world, uh, the more a thing, the more, the more there is of it, the less value it has, right? <laughs> so nobody's out there collecting rocks. Nobody runs out in the field after, there's another one! Because <laughs> they're just so darn abundant. It's the rare things that are precious, but in the kingdom, it's actually the abundant things that are precious. To know that you're the one that Jesus loves, and also Joel, and is this your husband? And also your husband, and also all the... doesn't diminish the amazingness of the fact that Jesus loves you. It actually increases it, because abundance is the watchword of the kingdom. The more there is, the more value there is to it. Isn't that true? I mean, don't just think about it. The abundance, abundant. Grace abounds. It's not a cheap thing because there's so much of it. It's a great thing. It's a precious thing. I have to say, uh, my wife and I have been on this journey for, it really intensified, actually, uh, since I've come to Calgary. And maybe that has to do with the winters, but... Uh, I was on Vancouver Island, but I digress. Um, I, I wish uh, when I was pastoring, I had understood this much clearer than I understand it now, that I am the one Jesus loves, because I think a lot of my preaching came out of anxiety, frustration, and anger. A lot of my ministry did, actually. Um, and Jesus says, if you live in this place, if you dwell in this place of knowing you are loved, lavishly, extravagantly, foolishly, unstintingly, unconditionally, <laughs> you will bear so much fruit. <laughs> There's going to be such an overflow of your love that's going to be marked out by, well, you will love one another. <laughs> Uh, it'll just come pouring out of you. And if you don't know you're loved, you're going to have to cling to the little love you think you have and your little titles and your little status and the things that make you feel important. And you're just going to be hoarding everything like this and living like this, and there won't be enough to give out. But if you know, if you know, you know when you know that you're the one just loves you, you can feel it, can't you? Just, I mean, just, there's, there's, there's just love to spare. Grace has been poured upon you. I mean, what does John start with? Out of his fullness, we've all received one blessing after the other, or probably a better translation, after his fullness, out of his fullness, we've all received one grace in place of grace already given. <laughs> Just keeps flowing and flowing and flowing and flowing. Probably the, the person who got this best 
in outside of the New Testament was David. Do you know what the name David means, beloved? Did you know that? Uh, who, who loved David? Did his dad? No evidence that his father. In fact, the rabbis trying to make sense of his father's ignoring of him and seeming contempt for him um, actually speculate that David was illegitimate. I don't think there's any biblical grounds for that, but it's a fairly consistent strain in the rabbinical reflections on the life of David because they just couldn't figure out why he seemed to like Jesse, the father, all his other boys, and had no time for David. We don't know really anything about David's mother. Netzavit is her, uh, her, the legend has it, her name. Uh, There's only one single reference to her in all of the story of David, and in fact, I had, uh, until I stumbled upon that reference in 1 Samuel, I think 23 or 24, uh, when David's an adult, I'd assume she died at childbirth because she just doesn't figure into a story. There is a little hint in Psalm 22, the my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, where D- David says in verse 9 that, that God, uh, that he has had to trust God since his mother's womb. And from his mother's breast, there's a sense that even his mother rejected him. And of course, his brother's like, you lazy, wicked kid. And being anointed as the next king in their presence probably did nothing to increase their love for him. David didn't, uh, this is a word for some of you. David wasn't loved by the people in his life. The one person he wanted to serve with all his heart was Saul, and Saul threw spears at him. He didn't grow up with, with this sort of uh, parents just pouring out love and affection and blessing and applause and you can do it. You've got what it takes. None of that went on in David's life. But did you get the sense when you read the David story that he's sort of wilting beneath the crushing, withering scorn of his brother and brothers that he's like, I'm nothing. I mean, this guy's like, I can do that. <laughs> he almost comes off as cocky, right? <laughs> that windbag... You, let me fight him. Well, you need my armor. I don't need your armor. I'm just going to go up and take that guy out because he's defying God. Well, what's the secret of David? I think he was the one who understood before John ever showed up and said, I'm, I, I, the Father loves me. There's a great rabbi legend. I, I didn't mean to get into all this, but there's this rabbinical legend about Paul, uh, about David. Um, it's called a midrash. And, um, and, and it's, uh, it's called David in Paradise. And God comes at the great feast of redemption in Paradise. And it's just a great, la- you know, great joyous thing, great festival, great celebration. And he says, who will pour the wine of redemption? And he says, Abraham, pour it. And Abraham says, no, I'm unworthy. I tried to, you know, pass my wife off as my sister. All right, Moses, you pour it. No, I'm unworthy. I hit the rock. I got angry. Jacob, would you pour the thing? No, I'm unworthy. I stole the blessing. And on, on it goes, like, you know. And, and then, David, would you pour it? I'd love to, he says. <laughs> because they understood something. That this guy wasn't arrogant. He just had that profound confidence of knowing he's loved. And he didn't get that from his mom or dad or brothers. He got it from I'm the one. I'm the one. Stay here, Jesus says. 
Live in this place. Dwell here. Remain here. What is he saying? What's he saying? Is he saying there's a physical location that you need to sit there all day? I don't think so. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. It's impractical. In fact, the whole text is about go, go, go. Send, send, send. <laughs> You got to go out in the world. Get going. What does it mean to remain in his love? Here's what it means. At the core of your identity is knowing that you're loved. The very foundation of, of who you are, of knowing who you are, is that you know that you're loved. Live in that place, he says. Live in this lavish, lavish knowledge. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on you. That you should be called his child, and that's what you are. Just know it. Sister, you know it, don't you? <laughs> you know it. <laughs> Just live there. This is your identity when all the voices around you would tell you otherwise. <laughs> would try to deny it, would try to steal in your own voice in your head. Paul, John later in 1 John, when he's talking about all this love, says, um, uh, this is what you can rest in even when your own heart condemns you. <laughs> even your own heart says it's, it's a lie. No, no, you can actually rest in his truthfulness, his testimony. I love you, I love you, I love you. <laughs> Folks, I, I, can't, I can't think of a better word to, to end with before your pastor comes back to, to just exhort you that you are the ones, each one of you, that Jesus loves, and this does not diminish it. It actually increases it. And that this is your identity. You have no greater identity, no other foundation, no other basis. This is actually who you are. Well, last week we sang that wonderful song, I'm a good, He's a good, good father. It's who he is, who he is, and I'm loved by him. Let me close. I, uh, <laughs> back in the wartime, World War II, there were some French troops posted in North Africa. And they befriended some desert dwellers, Bedouins, uh, camel or goat herders or whatever, just moved from sort of little tussock to little tussock in the stony, parched desert trying to find food and water for their animals. But these French troops befriended some of these Bedouins. And the French troops were always trying to impress these somewhat primitive living people that, uh, with all their gadgetry. They'd show them their guns, they'd show them their planes, they'd show them their tanks and their jeeps, and they were always trying to sort of show off all this stuff, and, uh, and it was unimpressive to the Bedouins. They just solicited or elicited a collective sigh, a, a rather um, yawn. Unimpressive. Uh, a few of these French troops really got close with these three of the Bedouins, and after the war, they invited them back to Paris. And they really thought they would be bedazzled by Paris. I don't have been to Paris, but it's a dazzling city. And so they, they took them, you know, to the Eiffel Tower and Notre Dame, and they showed them the Seine and all the big boats playing across it, and, and bored. <sighs> But then they took them to the countryside. 
And these men who had lived in the desert all their lives had never seen anything like that. Fields that went on up to the horizon and, and that cast their imagination. Does it go over the hill? <laughs> moving, the, the, this beautiful green or gold fields moving under the sway of the wind. Forests that went on forever. You could lose yourself in a, in a quarter acre of it and it just went on forever. Beautiful, gleaming lakes. But the thing that most dazzled them was a waterfall. They took them to, uh, it was either the Pyrenees or the, or the Alps. And there was a granite uh, mountain, and out of the side of the mountain, this massive waterfall was gushing, pouring forth. And they stood there agog, looking at this waterfall, this white water just cascading from it, the rush of it, the, the roar of it, the abundance of it. And they would, they just would, I mean, they would look and they'd look at one another and they're bewildered and they're saying like, just one pulse out of the side of that mountain would be enough to water an entire village, all the people and all the animals for one year, at least a year in the places they came from. And they had to move from place to place just to find adequate water, muddy little holes and whatnot. Fresh, clean water, just one pulse. And they, they stood there for hours astonished, amazed at this waterfall. And finally their host said, we got to go. And they said, no. They said, no, we got to go. We got to get back to Paris by, by nightfall. And we, we really need to go. And they said, no, we're not leaving. We will stand here and we will behold this until God ceases his insanity and turns that thing off. And their host said, well, God has been doing this for thousands of years. And we fully expect him to do it for thousands more. The Father, through the Son, in the Spirit, has poured out his love. How abundantly, how lavishly. Behold what manner of love the Father has just poured on you. That you should be called children of God, and that's what you are. He's not going to cease his insanity anytime soon. But why don't you just stand and abide in it?